Father, we thank you for your for your word. We thank you for the Psalms and uh, how they so beautifully express um, the emotions of humanity. And Father, we thank you that we can come before you uh, honest and real, and and you know us uh, better than we know ourselves, Lord. Uh, you've even given us words in the Psalms to express how we feel to you, and, and we thank you for that, for knowing us so well, and for uh, loving us so well, and you know us so well because your Son came down to be like us, and to experience the things that we experienced. And Father, we want to know Him better. We want to love Him better and, and worship Him better. So um, be honored as, as your word is studied this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Okay, uh, Psalm 22. It's, it's right here, but if you have your Bibles, you can turn there too. Uh, it's a long psalm, 31 verses. Um, let's all read it t- together. We'll just take a verse and keep going, okay? Take two verses, take two verses. So, dumb, and then we'll just go clockwise. Uh, to the choir master, according to the Doe of the Dawn, a psalm of David. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy and throne on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. Um, to you they cry and were rescued in you they have trusted and were not put to shame but I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people all who seek me may mock me they may, they make mouths at me they wag their heads he trusts in the Lord let him deliver him let him rescue him for he delights in him yet you are he who took me from the womb you made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of the shalom surround me. They open wide their mouth at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. <coughs> I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like my heart is like wax, it is melted within my breath. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Uh, I can count all my bones. They stand below me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. For you might help me quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lions, you have rescued me from the mouth of the wild oxen. I will tell you uh, of your name, my brothers, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him, and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from them, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Then I'll just read the rest. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. 
Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Okay, sorry about that. So this is God's word. This is Psalm 22. And, uh, you know, from reading verse 1, I think all of us immediately are brought somewhere, right? Where are we brought? From reading verse 1. Yeah, we're brought to the cross. Oh, hang on. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's very important. That's, that's very good. And, and like Pastor Michael and Harry and everyone always wants to teach us, we're always looking at the, the grand picture of scripture. We always want to read every text of scripture within the whole narrative. So yeah, it's good that it brings us back to the cross. And, um, I think a lot of people are tempted to just read this and say, oh, this is just Jesus's special psalm. You know, it's just a prophecy, nothing more. It's, utterly different than all the rest of the Psalms. But I think it's important to, to remember what what it says in the very beginning. To the choir master, according to the Doe of the Dawn, a Psalm of who? Of David. Yeah, so we don't want to read this text in isolation from David who actually wrote this. God actually used a man, David, to express his feelings in this altar um, here. And it's, it's so it is pointing to Jesus Christ, but we also want to remember the original context, okay? So, um... I have my outline on the next page. Historical context. So that's the question we always want to ask, right, when we're studying the Bible. What is the historical context? What is the writer experiencing? What's he going through at this time? Um, to be honest, for Psalm 22, we, we really don't know. And I think that's one reason why a lot of people want to say, oh, it's just about Jesus. Okay. But, but we also want to, we want to honor, we want to honor David as the writer of scripture. And there are things that we can appreciate if we uh, remember that David was the one who wrote this. So there's some possible historical context that this psalm could have risen out of. Um, we know David was persecuted, right? He was persecuted by Saul. He was persecuted by Absalom. And so in those times of persecution, he could very well have felt forsaken. You know, He could have very well felt forsaken. Um, other people who I disagree with um, they want to say this is just a d- direct prophecy, right? Acts 2 says David himself was a prophet, talking about Jesus Christ. Um, and again, for Psalm 22, we don't know exactly where David was when he was writing this, what he was experiencing. But again, we don't want to dismiss this psalm as completely unrelated to David or or the rest of Israel, right? This, this was Israel's songbook, the psalms. So everyone sang this psalm. It's not like only Jesus sings this song. We sing it too. We sing the Psalms as well as, as covenant believers, okay? So, let's take a look at the literary context. Last, well, the first week I, I went over, um, a Psalm of like Thanksgiving and praise, right? And then last week Pastor Michael did an imprecatory Psalm, a Psalm, um, calling down curses on, on the enemies of God, right? So, um, today's Psalm is actually kind of special. It's kind of special because it's, uh, not just a lament, where, where he's crying out to God, asking for help. But it ends, I, I don't know if you noticed, it ends with praise and thanksgiving, and, and there's even some prophecy of what's going to happen later. So it's a, it's a pretty special psalm. It doesn't fit into just one category, okay? But it does start off with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if, if anything is a lament, this psalm does fall into that category. This psalm is a lament. Okay, so I have the structure of the psalm right here for you. To be honest, I just stole it from a, 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 a scholar who is 
really on point with everything he had to say. So this is um, the structure of the psalm. Okay, this is the structure of the psalm. This is um, this will help us as we go through it and uh, understand what he was trying to express and and the the um, emotions and the feelings that he was trying to um, express to God. And and when we understand the psalmist's um, when we understand the psalmist's expression to God, we'll we'll also understand Jesus Christ's expression to God. Because who's the ultimate psalm singer? It's it's Jesus, right? So we'll get to that eventually too. Um, so look at look at verse tw- one and twenty one. So I, I want I just want to show you that this structure is not completely arbitrary. Okay. Verse one. Okay. Notice what it says in verse one. It says, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Okay? Why are you so far from saving me? Then look at verse 21. It says, Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So it's kind of a bracket. Do you, do you, cap, do you see that? He says, Why are you so far from saving me? In verse 1. And then what does he say in, in verse 21? Save me. You have rescued me. So that's how we know. It's kind of one section. He's saying... Why are you so far? Where are you? How are you going to save me? And then at the in that middle point, at the end of this first section of the psalm, he says, you have saved me. Okay? And there's another bracket in verse 22 and 31. So look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Okay? Then verse 31. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it so in verse 22 and in verse 31 you also see a a similar theme you see a a theme of proclaiming of telling telling how great god is so in the beginning he's saying god save me then then he says you have saved me then he says i will tell of your name to to in the great congregation i will speak of your righteousness right so his his prayer it turns into praise and that's the beauty of this psalm it's not just a lament it's it's praise as well, you know, and I think that's that's so comforting as a Christian, right? When we realize we don't just cry out to God and and hear nothing. It's not like He does nothing. We have a God we know will save us. So our our prayers and our cries and our tears always turn into praise. That's what the gospel guarantees for us. Okay, so that's what this psalm points us to. Now let's go through it. There's um there's some subsections to these these two sections I just pointed out. Okay. So, the first subsection is verses 1 through 10, okay? Verses 1 through 10, and basically, basically what the psalmist is doing here is he's just um, expressing how he feels completely rejected by God. And, and what he's doing is he's preaching to himself. Remember like Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He's preaching the truths uh, of Scripture to himself to comfort his own soul. Okay, he's doing the same thing. Now, let's look at verse 1 and 2. Okay. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Okay, and I think this, these are some words that we can all, um, we can all, uh, what's the word? Identify with. These are words we can all identify. There are times where we for, feel forsaken by God. You know, it's it's so interesting. He says, my God, right? My God. He's he's our God, right? 
But then he says, why have you forsaken me? Right? If he's truly my God, why would the God who's given himself to me, the God who is mine, forsake me? So there's a, there's a huge tension here. And I think as Christians, we all feel that, that tension. Um, this God, he has given himself to us. He said, I, you are mine, I am yours. And yet sometimes we do feel, we do feel forsaken. So this is the experience of not only us, but believers in the past. This was David's experience. And as we'll see later is, uh, Christ's experience. So right there, my God, why? There's a covenantal tension. God is covenanted with us, but he seems to be gone. What, what's up with that? And the psalmist is trying to figure that out. Okay. Um, and then also just, um, in keeping with, you know, teaching how to read the Psalms, we also want to be aware of the parallelism, right? Forsakenness. Um, what does it mean to be forsaken? He goes on in the next, what's called a line or colon. He goes in the next colon to say, far from saving me and far from the words of my groaning. Okay. So just remember that that's how you, um, the psalmist always spoke in layers. The psalmist always spoke in layers, and, and the layers of meaning become richer as you go forward. Um, yeah, so in verse 2, he says, you know, you do not answer. I'm crying out to you, but you do not answer. What's up with this? You're my God. You're supposed to answer me, but there's silence. Okay. So we're going to see the psalmist wrestle with that in this psalm. <clears throat> but then he comforts himself in verse 3. He talks about his experience I feel forsaken. I feel like you're not hearing me. Then he says, yet you. So he shifts the focus from his own experience and he goes and he looks to God. He says, yet you, okay? Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel and you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued and you they trusted and were not put to shame. So he's saying, I'm feeling forsaken right now. I feel like you don't hear me. I feel like you're silent. But I know you're sovereign. Because in you, our fathers trusted. You are a good God. You are a faithful God. You are a God who truly does hear. Even though I feel like you're not hearing me right now, you do hear. And how does he know that? Because in history, in the Exodus, God did hear them. He heard their cries. And he rescued them. So he reminds himself of God's covenant faithfulness in the past, and he comforts his soul with that truth. In the same way, we should do that, right? In the same way, we can do that. We remember our great ultimate deliverance in Christ, and we are comforted in our souls when God seems far off. He says, I am with you always. We can take that to the bank, right? Um, all right, let's look at verse 6. Then he, then he shifts back to his own experience, okay? He shifts back to his own experience. He's, he says, yet you in verse 3, but in verse <coughs> 6 he says, but I, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him, okay? So here, he just comforted his soul with, the truth of what God had done in the past for his people. But he's like, well, is somehow my situation different? Could it be that I am less worthy of the deliverance of God than the people of Israel? He says, but I am a worm. If you think about the worm, do you, do you remember any other place in scripture where the worm is talked about? There, there are a handful of places. Um, 
But the one I think about is in Jonah. Do you guys remember what happens in Jonah? There's a worm that... Um, well, Jonah's sitting outside of Nineveh. He's waiting for God to completely demolish the city. And then God gives him a vine, right? And he's shaded in the vine from the heat. And then God sends a worm to destroy or to eat up the vine. And, and Jonah's really mad and he's like, I wish this worm would be destroyed, right? Worms are never portrayed in a, in a positive light. They're always something worthy of destruction, right? The worm and, and the gall, right? Um, so he's saying, perhaps I'm a worm. Perhaps I'm worthy of destruction. It's a totally um, unloved, useless creature. And he's beginning to consider, you know, is this me? Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why God is forsaking me. Maybe that's why he's not listening to my words of, of for my cry for help. And, um, and yeah, so that's, again, he's being real with God. He's, he's telling God exactly how he feels. Even when he comforts himself, he's still considering other options. He's still considering other options, all right? And then we see that it doesn't help that there are people outside mocking him, right? They're mocking him. They're saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him, right? And that should take us back to the cross too, right? That's what they yelled at our Savior. That's what people will yell at us when when th- things don't seem to be going right for Christians. They say, isn't your God supposed to be helping you out? We say, I don't know. I don't know what to say, right? And that's where the psalmist is. He's speechless. He doesn't know what to say, okay? And then let's look at verse 9 and 10. So, Shift goes from him to God, yet you, then back to him, but I. And then verse 9 and 10, again, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. So again, he comforts his own soul by saying, you are still my God. I believe it with all my heart. You are my God. You've always been my God. Ever since my mother's womb. And that's why I love, that's what we love about covenant theology, Presbyterianism. We say that these children who are being born into our community are truly connected to, to the covenant. They're truly connected to God. Our God is truly their God too. Okay? And this psalmist is saying, I'm, I'm part of this community. I know, I know for sure that you are my God ever since I was born, even from the womb. Even from the womb. You made me trust you. God, you brought me into this community. You, We don't just make God our God, right? We don't make God our God. God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people, right? And that's what this, this psalmist is reflecting on. He said, you're the one who gave yourself to me. You're the one who made me um, yours and, and made yourself mine. <clears throat> Always been his God, okay? So that's that's what he's going through in verses one through ten. He's he's wrestling with the truths that he knows in his heart and how they are in tension with his experiences. He feels forsaken, but he knows that God is a God who's uh, faithful to His covenant. So that's what he's wrestling through: seeming rejection. Okay. Now let's look at verses eleven to twenty-one. That's the next subsection. In verses 11 to 21, he begins to notice so far he's only <coughs> told God of his experience and he's preached to himself the truths that God's given to him. But in 11 to 21, he starts to make requests. So far, he hasn't asked God for anything. He just says, why are you far? He doesn't say, be near. He just says, why are you far? He's trying to make sense of it. But now he's going to start asking God for help. 
He's going to start asking God for help and describe his suffering. Okay, So you see the cry for help like I have here in verse 11, 19, 20, and 21. He says, be not far from me. Right In verse 11, uh, verse 19, do not be far off. Come quickly to my aid. Right, um, Deliver my soul. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Right, So he's asking God for help. And ultimately, that's what we need to do too, right? We need to be real with God. We need to tell him um, what we're experiencing, and we need to preach truths to ourselves. But that shouldn't stop us from asking God, help me out. Help me out, please. And when we, when we ask God to help us out, it's not selfish. It's actually an act of praise, because when we ask God for help, what are we acknowledging? When we ask God for help, what we're acknowledging is that he's the only one that can help us. That we can't help ourselves, and that's essential to understanding the gospel, right? That's what Christianity is. We do not save ourselves. God alone saves us. God alone saves us. So he's beginning to cry for help, and the language in verse 11 to 21, um, I'll, just, I'll just read it here. I'll just read 11 to 21 quickly. It says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and glow over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Okay, I'm going to stop there, actually. That language of being encircled by, by vicious animals, right? Encircled by dogs, by bulls, by, by strong, angry, hungry animals and being laid in the dust of death and being mocked for it is language of execution. It's language of someone who is about to about to get killed by by people. By people. And um, again, this should bring us back to the cross as well, and we'll get to that. But that that's what I wanted to point out. This is language of execution. Okay? Verse eleven he says, um, trouble is near but there's none to help. So he's saying, trouble is near, but God, I don't feel like you're near. I want you to be near. So he's beginning to ask God, be near, be near to me. Okay? And again, we have um, the imagery as, as you just read. And then and then in verse 19 to 21, he, he really makes a push. In 19 to 21, he says, God, help me, help me, deliver me. But you, Lord, do not be far off. You, my help, Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And what is God's answer to him? What is God's response to the cry for help? At the end of verse 21, the psalmist, after crying out to God for help, is able to say, You have rescued me. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And that's that's the beauty of of Christianity, we know for sure, we know for sure that despite our circumstances, despite how we feel, despite being executed even, we will be rescued. Whether in life or death, we will be rescued. And the psalmist, he knew that. He knew that he was going to be rescued in verse 21. 
Okay. Um, so that's that's the first section. That's the lament. That's the dark part of the psalm, right? The dark part. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that those are crazy, deep, powerful words, you know? I mean, I, I don't know. Have, have any of you ever actually said that to God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe we say, where are you at? Or why things seem this way, but... This language is so strong, you know? My God, oh my God, right? Oh my God, but he really means it. Oh my God, why have you forsaken me? He takes us to the depths, but in verse 21 he says, you have rescued me. He says, why have you forsaken me? But at the end he's able to say, you have rescued me, okay? That's the emotional experience of the psalmist. Now let's look at verse 22, um, to 31. So that's the second section of the psalm where the prayer turns to praise. Okay? And there's two subsections here. Um, verses 22 to 26. Let's go over that first subsection. So in verses 22 to 26, he's praising God. He's praising God. And notice, notice how, um, the psalmist contrasts his praise with his lament. Okay? So in verse 1, right? It says, uh, why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Right? Why are you so far from saving? Why are you so far from words of my groaning? Why are you so far from hearing me? Right? But in verse 24, it says, But he has heard when he cried to him. So he praises God for that. He has heard. Even though his experience was that God was far from hearing, God really did hear and he did rescue him. <clears throat> Same thing in verse 6. Um, I am a worm. I am scorned by mankind and despised by the people. What does verse 24 says? But praise be to God, for he is not despised. Though man may despise me, my, my God, my covenant God, he does not despise me. He does not despise me. Verse 7. Um, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. In verse 27 and 29, it says, All the ends of the earth... Even the ones who mocked me, even the ones who wagged their heads, they shall remember and turn to the Lord, and they shall worship before Him. Verse 29, All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. And who is the one who could not keep himself alive? All of humanity. No, no human is able to keep himself alive. All people, even the ones who wag their heads, they will turn and, and they will worship the one who deserves I'll worship, okay? Now, um, take a look at verse 22, okay? Take a look at verse 22. That's, that's the beginning of our bracket, right? I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And I think, I think that's such a beautiful thing. Not only is he <clears throat> praising God, okay? Not only is he praising God, but he's, he's exhorting other people to praise God. See, that's the kind of deliverance that God has done for us. It's not just a deliverance that we exalt in by ourselves, but we exalt in it in the midst of the congregation, right? Think, if this guy were truly executed, if David or an Israelite who was experiencing this were truly executed, would he be able to come to the congregation and sing and worship? No, he wouldn't. But God rescued him in order to worship him. So I think sometimes we... Um, we just say, oh, sweet, God has rescued me. But we forget why God rescues us. <clears throat> like, um, 
if you if you look in the book of Exodus, whenever Moses says to Pharaoh, um, "Please let my people go," he doesn't just say "Let my people go" so that they may be rescued. He says, "Let my people go, so that we may go and worship the Lord." Okay. He always adds that. Now, I think that's important for us to remember too, because again, God doesn't just save us for the sake of saving us. He saves us unto something. He saves us so that we can worship on Sunday. You know, so. You know, when we go later to sing and, and worship through the word, like, I hope you guys remember that, like, um, we've been saved for this very purpose, for this very purpose, to, to worship him. And that worship itself is not something that we just give to God, it's his gift to us, you know, that we can be in communion with him through worship. So, so this guy, he's, he's praising God in the midst of the congregation because he's rescued him in verse 22. Okay, and, um... And then in verse 23, like I said, he, he calls the rest of his brothers and sisters in the covenant community to join in worship. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him, all you offspring of Israel. I remember uh, when I was in high school, I, I like worship leading. And, uh, you know, if you talk to any worship leader, they're really like elitist and snobby about the kinds of songs that they like to choose. And for me... Um, I only like to choose songs that, that spoke in, um, with words like you, like songs that, that directly were addressed to God. Like, um, cause, cause for me, worship was, was individual. It was personal. So I'm just singing these things to God, you know? So I didn't really like songs, even great songs like how deep the father's love for us. Cause I couldn't sing that to God. I was, you know, when we say how deep the father's love for us, we're singing that to each other, you know? But um, stuff like this really opened up my eyes to see, like, you know, it's not just about me talking to God when I'm worshiping. It's Worship is also us talking to each other and encouraging each other with how deep the Father's love is for us, you know. And I think that's really cool. Um, but that's just a little aside. Um, and, yeah. So he's calling people to praise him in verse 23. Why is he calling people to praise him? Verse 24, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. I think that's that's so beautiful. Like, if you, if you read throughout scripture, like, God, God really does have a special heart for the afflicted. You know, for the marginalized, the, the downtrodden, the poor. You know, in Luke chapter 4 it says, Blessed are, it doesn't say the poor in spirit like in Matthew. It, says just, it just says, Blessed are the poor. God has a very special heart for the afflicted. And and if we're truly understanding the gospel, we were, we'll remember how, how afflicted we were before Christ. Even if it's metaphorically, maybe we never were poor. But still, that ought to give us hearts for those outside who are afflicted. That's God's very own heart. He has a heart for the afflicted. He does not despise them. He does not drive past them on the freeway and and have a cold heart and cold shoulder to them. His heart breaks for the afflicted. He says it right here, and he rescues them. Okay? Um, and then verse 25, it says, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. Now that, that's kind of a weird statement, right? From you comes my praise in the great congregation. It almost sounds like God is praising us or something like that. But I think what the psalmist is trying to capture is the fact that 
even our worship unto God, like I just said, is God's gift to us. It's not something that we choose to do, but He He captures us, He chooses us, He rescues us, He He breaks into our lives, and He brings us into His own praise. See that that's that's the, the beauty of Christianity too. It's it's all God's work from beginning to end, salvation and even our very own good works and, and worship of Him. It's all from Him. It's all from Him. I think that's such a cool thing. Um, and then, yeah, verse 26, I just wanted to point out again. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. God turns the misfortunes of the afflicted and he turns it on its head. He reverses that order and he lifts them up and they shall be satisfied. Okay. Now, um, verse 27 to 31 um, is the last subsection. All right. And what the psalmist begins to do is he begins to prophesy. Okay, he gives a prophecy. He says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Okay. So his praise turns into prophecy. Right? He's saying, not only am I praising you now, not only am I calling my brothers to praise you now, but I know because of how sovereign you are, because you are the God of the whole earth, that you will be praised. You're going to receive what you're due. Okay? And it doesn't seem like that all throughout Scripture, right? From the, from the moment Adam and Eve sinned, it doesn't seem like that. <clears throat> God created Adam and Eve in the garden. He put Adam there. He says, rule and, and um, have dominion over the earth. He was meant to be a king. And he was meant to rule in such a way that all the ends of the earth would worship the creator. Right? He says, be fruitful and multiply. Make more people to worship me. Okay? But the fall, what happens? The fall, Adam sins. And humanity is plunged into a state of not worshiping. Not worshiping the creator that they're supposed to worship. And then, but God says, I'm going to preserve a line, right? The seed of the woman is going to prevail over the seed of the serpent. I'm going to prevail. And so there's, you have these two lines all throughout scripture. And then at Babel, what happens? They're spread out even more. Even more nations are brought about and more uh, people are separated from the seed of the woman, right? But God, so what does God say to Abraham? God says to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed, right? All the nations of the world will be blessed. And where do we see that fulfilled ultimately? In Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, the, the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down. Those who were once aliens outside the commonwealth of Israel are brought in through Christ. And we see that the reversal of Babel, where? At Pentecost. At Babel, God made all these different people speak a bunch of different languages but at Pentecost God begins to restore he, he gives those fires, fiery tongues right and people begin to preach the gospel to people with different languages see God always intended for the whole earth to praise and bless and worship him and we see him beginning to fil- fulfill that in Christ and at Pentecost and then in the new heavens and the new earth Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 it says that 
He has ransomed those from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation to worship Him. So, He's giving that prophecy right here in Psalm 22. That's always been God's intention. God is God of the whole earth, not just Israel, not just America. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. I'll skip this, but um, I'll just say briefly. Verse 29 talks about how we'll be made equals. We're all brothers. In the gospel, we're put on level playing field, right? The rich and the poor. Uh, verse 30 to 31 talks about how his praise will continue forever. And look at that, what he says here. This will be important later. All right. Uh, look at the very last um, phrase in verse 31. Um, to people yet unborn. That he has done it. Okay? That he has done it. Now in the Hebrew, it's just one word. It's just one verb. Uh, the word do. Okay? So And imported into that is the, the pronoun he and it is also an imported uh, direct object. But really, it's just <coughs> one word in the Hebrew. And, and another way it could be translated, though, a very legitimate translation is, it is done. It is done. Okay? Now think about that. Think about that, how, how this psalm starts. Right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're taken to the cross at the beginning of this psalm. We're taken to the cross all throughout this psalm. And at the very end, just like at the very end of the cross, it says, it is done. It is finished. Right? So with that, let's, let's take a look at how Jesus sang this psalm in a way that the Israelites, in a way that David, in a way that we uh, will never have to sing this psalm. Okay? So again, Christ is the ultimate psalm singer. If you have your Bibles, can you turn to Hebrews chapter 2? So I think a lot of times people say, oh, there are certain messianic psalms in the Bible, right? There are certain messianic psalms in the Bible. But what I want to argue today is that every psalm of scripture is a messianic psalm. Every psalm of scripture points to Christ because he is the ultimate singer of the psalms, okay? So Hebrews chapter 2, read verse (coughs) 9 to 12. Uh, Ashley, can you read that for us? Chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 9 through 12. Um, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Yeah, that's beautiful. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He is our brother who sings with us. What does he sing? He sings Psalm 22, right? I will tell of your name (coughs) to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's right there in Psalm 22.22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of, your, of the congregation, I will praise you. Jesus is the ultimate song singer. And in his uh, resurrection, he sings along with us. He sings along with us. Now, again, that, that's very important. Okay, Scripture always interprets Scripture. That's what we hold to at this church. That's, that's the um, 
the stronghold of Reformed Protestant theology. Scripture interprets Scripture. Roman Catholics say, no, tradition, the church, the Pope, they interpret Scripture because you need a man to do it. But we say, no, God himself will interpret Scripture to us. Scripture is self-attesting. There is no authority over it. Okay? So how does Scripture interpret Scripture? We see Psalm 22 ultimately interpreted in light of Matthew 27. Okay, and I have a little chart for us here to, to kind of look at some examples of that. Okay, in verse 18 of the psalm, they're casting lots. They do that to Jesus in Matthew 27, 35. In, in verse 7 of the psalm, they mock Jesus. Or they mock the psalmist. In 27, 39 of Matthew, they wag their heads, right? Verse 8 of the psalm, they, they, again, they mock him. They say, this guy... Tr- says he trusts in the Lord, let the Lord deliver him. They say the very same, same thing to Jesus in Matthew twenty-seven forty-three. And again, here, the most, to me, to me, this is the most powerful verse in all of Scripture when our Savior says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Like, I don't know, that's powerful, you know. That's that's so powerful. And and what this points to is the fact that David, Israel, even us, we're all only types and shadows of Christ when we sing this psalm. Ultimately it did point we don't we don't want to neglect David's experience, but ultimately it did point to Jesus Christ. He sings this psalm in an ultimate way that is greater than oh sorry, Roxanne. In a way that we could never sing it. Okay, I'm going to skip this passage right here. But what First Peter chapter one talks about is how the prophets always, when God told them stuff, they always looked and they wondered what what these things were going to be like. And the reality, finally, the shadow, the type has come into reality in, in Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, and again, like I said, Christ saying and experiencing some in a way that we will never have to. And think about it this way: like you know, when we're in intense agony, when we're in intense pain, feeling abandoned, like, what's the first thing that we say? We say, we curse, or we say, oh, crap, or we say, oh, my God, but we don't really mean it, right? We don't quote scripture. But Jesus, in his ultimate agony, in an agony that we will never have to experience, what does he say? He quotes scripture. He's not He's not just making up, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's consciously preaching scripture to himself, and he's saying, I understand the psalmist, and I understand the psalmist in a way that the psalmist doesn't even understand himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am truly being forsaken upon this cross. The psalmist and us, when we're forsaken, it really, in a certain sense, it just seems that way. Because at the end, what we say, we have been rescued. We don't suffer the wrath of God. Maybe it seems like God is absent, but we don't suffer his fury, his wrath, he doesn't crush us. But Jesus, when he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The forsakenness there is the absolute wrath of God. <coughs> the absolute wrath of God that he's experiencing. And when he says, my God, my God, he knows that in a different way than we do, right? Because who loved God more than Jesus Christ? Who loved God more than Jesus Christ? No one. We can say, my God, my God, and we can expect God to to be faithful to his covenant to us, but not in the same way that Jesus did. Right? 
If we said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you poured your wrath out upon me? He would say, because you're a sinner. You deserve my wrath. You deserve to be forsaken. You don't even deserve to say my God to me. But Jesus Christ, he's the only one that can truly say, my God, my God, in complete confidence. Why have you forsaken me? And it makes no sense that Jesus Christ was forsaken. So when Jesus Christ asked this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's the answer? The answer is for sinners like us. Because I didn't want to leave them. I didn't want to forsake them. I wanted to love them. And that is why, my son, that is why I'm forsaking you. That's the gospel. He's our substitute. He's our substitute. Jesus knew this in a way that we will never have to. And um, we only have five more minutes, so I'm going to skip some stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, isn't that beautiful, though? Like, like I, I say, he, he didn't say, my hands, my hands, my head, my head, my feet, my feet, or my friends, my friends. Like, he says, my God, my God. That's what he lost. I mean, we, we should be thankful that he endured, the, he, blo- he shed his blood for us, right? But if that's our ultimate definition of hell, then we have too low a definition of hell. Hell is not a bloody head, a bloody brow, pierced hands, pierced feet. Hell is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, and um, that is, it's just crazy, you know. And if we understand that, how could we not want to tell people about this God, you know, who has saved us from crying these words, you know, this cry belonged to us, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus took that cry, he made it his own, he made it his own, and we are not forsaken because he was in our place. You know, in uh, in Revelation, when God's wrath finally comes to judge people, like, you know what they cry? They don't cry, my God, they cry to the rocks. They cry, rocks, crush me. I don't want to confront this God, you know. But our Savior here, he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he, he can mean it, you know, he can mean it. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, we only have three more minutes, so I'll just close and we'll go to this part where it says, so how do we, how do we sing this psalm? Okay. So we can truly sing this psalm because the fact of the matter is we do feel forsaken. We do for, feel forsaken. We do feel like God is far off. That is a real experience <coughs> that we could be honest with God about. But like I said, this is not just a psalm of lamentation. It's a psalm of praise. We can still say, you have rescued me and I will tell of your name in the congregation. I will praise you in all the ends of the earth. They will praise you as well. Okay. And not only should we sing it remembering that we will ultimately be saved, but we should also remember what it cost for God to, to rescue us. And what it cost for God to rescue us was Jesus Christ singing this psalm and making it his own. He's the one that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, um, yeah, it's just, it's amazing, really. 
Like uh, C.J. Mahaney, I don't know if you guys have heard of him. Uh, he says, Jesus screamed so we could sing. Right? Jesus screamed so we could sing. When we, when we ask God, you know, really we should be asking God, my God, my God, why haven't you forsaken me? Right? When we consider our sin, we ask him, why haven't you forsaken me? And what he says to us is, he says, it's because my son already was forsaken. My son, again, he, he screamed in agony so you could sing in adoration and in praise. So yeah, just, um, that's the takeaway for this morning. Don't, just don't forget, this cry belonged to us. This cry belonged to us, but again, Jesus screamed so we could sing. So let's, let's do that in a couple minutes, okay? Alright, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the gospel and that you have sent a substitute for us. The perfect son, God and man, who knows us inside and out, who knows what it means to be a man, who knows what it means to be forsaken. Father, you have promised us, you have said to us, I am with you always. And you've said to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Father, will we not just take that truth and that promise as something that is owed to us just because of who you are, but will we remember that that promise cost you something? That you will never leave us or forsake us is at the price of Christ crying from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, we come before you knowing that we were the ones who deserved to be forsaken, but ever thankful that you forsook your Son instead. And that he is, he's alive. He is, he is risen. So he sings along with us that you have rescued him. You rescued him as well. You will rescue us. And we want the world to know this, this glorious truth. We want the rest of the world to join us in praising you. We thank you that Jesus screamed so we could sing. Help us to sing uh, unto his glory and as those who have been redeemed. Uh, this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.